welcome to Your Beacon, and a welcome from me, Rupert Sparling. This week, we investigate the International Criminal Court. Is the ICC a tool of Western imperialism, only punishing leaders from small, weak states while ignoring crimes committed by richer and more powerful states? Or is the ICC one of the great bastions of global justice, wholly committed to bringing about an end to impunity for the most powerful individuals, whoever they might be? This issue is a contentious one, and not all my interviewees will agree with one another, as one might expect. Nevertheless, I hope you can join me in this attempt to truly get to grips with the ICC and its role in the modern world. And with that spirit, let's indulge in our first interview. I asked the spokesperson for the ICC, Fadi El Abdallah, why does the ICC exist, and what are its fundamental aims? The International Criminal Court has been uh, created as the first permanent court uh, created by a treaty in order to help fighting impunity for the perpetrators of the most serious crimes um, that are of a concern to the international community as a whole, namely war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and when the conditions will be met, the crime of aggression as well. The treaty has been adopted in 1998 and entered into force in 2002 after 60 states have ratified it. Mm -hmm. That was quite a, a record to be achieved in only four years. Subsequently, today we have more than double of this number. We have more than 120 states that are parties to the ICT, meaning 120 states, uh, more than 120 states that have accepted that there should be a mechanism to uh, sanction uh, the perpetrators of these mass crimes, to say that there should not be uh, impunity uh, for them, and that the victims have a voice inside the courtroom. The ICC proceedings allow the victims to participate and to ask for reparations if the uh, accused is found guilty. And there is trust fund that helps with the reparations for the benefit of the victims. So this community of states, it's a growing one. Of course, the, there are uh, some concerns and preoccupations that we call for the states to discuss in the right forum, which is the assembly of the states' parties to this international treaty that we call the Rome Statute. But um, on the general uh, level, the, this uh, big community of states that are committed for uh, justice for the victims and for fighting impunity. And by that, according to the preamble of the statute itself, by that preserving the future generations and helping building a strong and lasting peace by uh, preventing the repetition of the commission of such crimes. I then asked what the ICC's official position was on the recent withdrawals of South Africa, Burundi and Gambia. Well, it's not for the ICC to speak on behalf of these states. It's for the governments to explain the reasons for which uh, they are withdrawing and uh, um, to a certain extent um, for the general public to decide whether uh, these uh, uh, reasons matches the facts or not. Uh, so we cannot speak on their behalf. Uh, from the ICC point of view, uh, there is a clear rule in the Rome Statute, Article 27, that clearly says that no immunity can be offered for any person because of his official capacity. 
-hmm. And uh, if you recall well, this tool has already been used by uh, several other international tribunals since the Nuremberg and Tokyo um, uh, trials and later on with the International Criminal Tribunal for ex-Yugoslavia, uh, the one for Rwanda um, and other international tribunals. It has also been admitted um, and accepted by uh, the International Court of Justice, which is the highest court in matters of public international uh, law that basically uh, said that the uh, matter of respecting and giving immunity, diplomatic immunity, uh, plays only when we are speaking about this immunity before national courts and not when uh, the matter is related to international crimes prosecuted before international tribunals. Then there is no uh, place to apply the role of immunity. This is something that is um, uh, very clear. It is in the Rome Statute. The states that have ratified the Rome Statute have accepted it, noting that it has already existed, as I said before, and accepted by the other uh, international tribunals as uh, well. Um, and uh, so this is the, the legal uh, standing. Um, after that, as I said, I cannot speak on behalf of these um, governments. Um, but of course, the ICC and the uh, president of the uh, Assembly of State Parties have called on these states to reconsider their decision and to bring their concerns and preoccupation to be discussed in the right forum, which is the Assembly of States Parties to the ICC on statute. Some of those parties, um, and indeed certain people, claim that the reason for these withdrawals is a certain anti-African stance the ICC has. So, for example, the ICC, as you say, has 20, 124 members, 34 of those are African states, and the Office of Prosecutors sought to bring charges against 31 individuals since the ICC began operating in 2002, and all of them are African. Um, what do you make of these claims that the ICC has an anti-African bias? Uh, well, I would, I would answer in two folds. Uh, first one is the ICC is there to protect victims. Mm -hmm. And the ICC uh, has offered... Uh, the possibility to participate in the proceedings to tens of thousands of victims. That in this instance happens to be African, but uh, we need to offer them this possibility, this legal protection, and we need to ensure that they will uh, um, see justice being done for them. And by that, we hope that will prevent the repetition of crimes against them in the future, and we can break the cycle of violence by installing justice. So that's the first thing. I think it's a matter of perspective. And the IC is not targeting the suspect. The suspects benefit of the highest standards for, of a fair trial. Mm -hmm. The ICC is there to protect the victims. So it is on the side of the victims. And if in these instances there are African victims, uh, they also, like all the victims, deserve justice. So that's not, uh, um, uh, we are not targeting someone, we are protecting someone. The second element in this is, let's go and try to check the facts. Mm -hmm. Is the ICC targeting African, or is the ICC responding to an African strong demand and request to bring justice in these situations? And the fact is that the ICC can open investigations under three different mechanisms. The first one, and the one that has been the major in the majority of the cases used, is at, upon the request of the states themselves. So the ICC opened investigation um, essentially because the states did ask her, did ask it to open it. So uh, that was the case, for example, for 
um, Mali, for Democratic Republic of Congo, for Uganda, for Central African Republic twice, uh, recently for Gabon, um, Cote d'Ivoire, which is was not at the time uh, a state party could not technically make a referral, but uh, they made a declaration under Article 23 accepting to be under the ICG jurisdiction for the IC prosecutor to look into the violence that happened on their territories. So in all these cases, you see that actually it's African states who asked the ICC to investigate uh, what has happened. And there has been no other referrals by other states from other regions or by African states regarding situations in other continents um, for the ICC to look into. But it's normal that when we have a request, what we call a referral by a state party, we have the obligation to look into it. And if there is uh, a basis to open an investigation, we have to open the investigation. So that's the first mechanism. The second mechanism is upon a referral by the Security Council. Security Council used this possibility only twice. Uh, so it's a kind of extraordinary um, uh, mechanism to trigger the jurisdiction of the court. And it has been used only with regard to Darfur in Sudan and to Libya. Mm. Um, both states were not state parties, but as I said, the Security Council can create legal obligations on them to cooperate with the ICC. Um, the Security Council did not use this possibility to refer any other situation to the ICC whether in Africa or outside of Africa. But even if we, if you look at this deferral themselves, the African states were represented in the Security Council. And if I take the example of uh, Libya, the referral uh, regarding Libya, it was voted by the unanimity of the members to the Security Council, meaning including the African uh, representative that were uh, sitting in the Security Council at that moment, they also asked the ICC to open an investigation regarding the situation in Libya. So again, you see that there is a, a request from outside to the ICC, including a request from African states to the ICC to open these investigations. Lastly, the ICC prosecutor can, on her own initiative, open um, an investigation as well when the uh, criteria of jurisdiction are met. So, for example, they are not met in Iraq or in Syria because we are speaking about majority um, about alleged crimes committed by nationals of states non-parties on territories of state non-parties. But the ICC is looking, the IC prosecutor is looking in different uh, um, cases or different situations. So, based on that, um, there is what we call the preliminary examination, so the first step to decide whether or not to open an investigation. There are uh, currently 10 preliminary examinations that may lead to um, uh, investigations, mm. and they concern very various uh, places in the world. Um, Afghanistan, Colombia, uh, Ukraine, uh, Palestine, and others. So it's not focused only on the African continent. And already the preliminary examinations have led to two investigations being opened already. One is regarding Kenya and the other one regards Georgia. So you see there is no specific targeting of any region. The ICC has to uh, apply a legal framework, which is the Roma Statute. Based on it, we can receive referrals from state parties or from the Security Council, and we have to act upon that. And the prosecutor can conduct preliminary examinations and is conducting preliminary examinations in different continents of the world and has open investigations, as I said, in Georgia as well as in Kenya. 
I then asked Muthoni Wanyeki, who was a human rights activist and the current regional director of Amnesty International in East Africa, about the recent withdrawals of Burundi, Zambia, and South Africa. Well, Gambia, I mean, you know, Gambia is run by essentially a mad person. Mm. Um, you know, a mad person with a very bad human rights record. Yes. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if there was any direct reason that sparked it off, uh, that withdrawal. Burundi, of course, has become more and more hardline mm. and more and more, you know, unapologetic about its handling of all the drama leading up to and pursuant to the, the last presidential elections. And, of course, you know, the threat of... Um, well, the ICC had opened a preliminary examination, so they were essentially evading that or trying to evade that or making a point, I think. Um, just like they've been fairly intransigent about making points about any human rights um, process in the country. Um, South Africa is a bit more interesting because, of course, you know, its own national courts had ruled that it should have, well, must arrest Bashir when he was there. Mm. And um, it took the view that as long as it's a state party, its courts would continue to make rulings, basically saying that the executive had to live up to its treaty obligations. Um, and it had no intention of doing so. But underlying the South African position is obviously both domestic and international concerns. Um, the whole anti-ICC card has been played very successfully, led by Kenya, a sort of, oh, this is an anti-imperialist, this, that, the other. And that sort of argumentation has resonance with a large sort of population, I would say, within South Africa that isn't sort of aware of the ins and outs of each situation. Um, so there was that. It was a populist card on the domestic front. Internationally, though, South Africa has been lobbying hard and is quite furious at sort of the stalling of reform efforts of the UN Security Council. And if you read its reasons for withdrawing, it referenced all of that. It was fundamentally a stand against global power. Does it look like, because South Africa is now withdrawn, we can expect reasonably other countries? Certainly. I mean, South Africa is the hegemon within Southern Africa. Mm. Um, and, you know, it has tried to project a kind of leadership role across the continent. Um, not that the continent has liked or responded well to that projection. But yeah, it's the first sort of serious state, I would say, um, that has withdrawn. The consequences are potentially high. But at the same time, I mean, you look at the number of African states that have come out quite strongly, including within SADC, um, in support of the ICC in the wake of the South African withdrawal. Botswana made a statement, a very strong statement, actually. Um, so, you know, maybe the consequences won't be as grave as you think. And I think, I mean, this is a personal opinion. Mm. Um, I mean, frankly, I think with these multilateral bodies, if you're not happy with them, either engage with what you're unhappy about or get out. Um, and I think the threat of a large-scale African withdrawal has been hanging over the head of the ICC for the past three, four years. And personally, I think it might be able to function better if it just proceeds with the states that accept its jurisdiction, that understand its role, mm -hmm. and just get 
rather than sort of, you know, this kind of bullying that we've seen at every assembly um, of state parties that has forced, you know, other member states to make concessions that, frankly, they shouldn't be making. So, yeah, let the states that accept its jurisdiction just continue and let this sort of bullying and leverage and stop. I then asked Dr. Christine Schrobel Patel, a senior lecturer in law at Liverpool University, what this recent controversy over the withdrawal of African nations says about the ICC as an institution. Right. So this really goes to heart of to the heart of the um, some of the issues with the International Criminal Court that it portrays itself as being an institution which is legal but not political and not politicised. And on the other hand, um, many critics of the International Criminal Court state that, well, first of all, it's an organisation which has been set up by states. So, of course, there are politics involved. And those state representatives who have been crucial in setting up the court and and, um, in in directing it, that, of course, they don't uh, leave their interests, their state interests, their political interests at the doorstep of such an organisation. Um, but the, the ICC has has persisted in this narrative that it's a legal institution and that law is is crucially separate from, from politics. Can you tell us about the principle of complementarity and how that limits the role of the ICC? So the principle of complementarity states that um, it's uh, essentially a court of last resort. So it can only uh, intervene when states are either unwilling or unable to deal with the situations in their own countries. Um, and that in itself, again, sounds like a, a, a promising principle, mm. um, but it has been arguably defined from the perspective, from a very sort of, again, um, a a perspective which serves the interests of the global north at the expense of the global south. So complementarity um, is invoked seemingly when um, the International Criminal Court views the, the relevant states as unwilling or unable, even if states have have uh, claimed that they are pursuing different um, routes themselves through their domestic courts, then the, the ICC has um, tended not to accept that in um, situations in Africa. Um, and often the, the, the um, principle of complementarity is invoked as a reason why um, the uh, International Criminal Court has not intervened in any uh, situations in the global north. So uh, people say, well, in in the global north, there are functioning um, courts and functioning criminal justice systems, um, and so there's no need for the International Criminal Court then. But that is precisely part of the the problem in understanding standards of international justice to have to reach a certain level of progress, which is allegedly only being reached in um, states in the global north. Mm. 
I then asked about the case which initiated the withdrawal of South Africa, in particular the indictment of the Sudanese President al-Bashir. So the crucial case there is um, the the, case, um, the arrest warrant which was issued against um, Omar um, al-Bashir, the president of Sudan. Sudan is not a member state of the Rome Statute, and so um, it can only be brought within the jurisdiction of the ICC um, well, one of the, one of the ways it, it can be brought within the jurisdiction is um, if there is a referral by the UN Security Council, and um, that's what happened. Uh, but of course, that's problematic in that three of the five permanent members in the Security Council, namely the US, Russia, and China, are not part of the. Um, part of the ICC, so they're not mm. state parties of the ICC. So you can see how situations can be politicised in that states who are not themselves subject to the jurisdiction of the Rome Statute um, can um, have a large um, and, and a great influence on submitting other states to the jurisdiction um, of the Rome Statute. I see. And this is what I suppose particularly disturbed South Africa, which has, of course, been lobbying for reform in the UN Security Council for some time now, quite vigorously. Um, do you think that's the sort of reason South Africa had for withdrawing? Yes, absolutely. And, and um, South Africa stated um, um, with its intention to withdraw from the jurisdiction of the ICC that um, it, um, it, it views itself as a, as a key player within um, Africa mm. in terms of um, uh, peace building and, and conflict resolution. And it views um, the, the Rome Statute as, as hindering this position. So... Um, uh, politically, it, it, it considers there um, to be a space for um, immunity um, of um, heads of state, and um, it, it considers that to be necessary um, for peace negotiations. In international criminal law, that's often the distinction which is made between peace versus justice. So um, uh, um, sometimes. Um, amnesties have, have been given, um, have been handed out. Of course, also um, in, in uh, South Africa and its apartheid history, um, in order for peace processes to continue. And what happened last year was that South Africa hosted the um, African Union Summit um, and uh, it invited Omar al-Bashir, the president of, of Sudan, to attend, and, and he attended. Um, and, and there was a, a, um, a, a dilemma there. So the, the um, responsibilities that South Africa has as a member state of the International Criminal Court um, seem to clash with um, its interests in um, uh, pursuing um, diplomacy and um, conflict resolution within Africa. And so what was considered or what was then termed the, the great escape happened that Omar al-Bashir uh, was allowed to um, stay in, in South Africa and also then to, to leave South Africa again 
despite an arrest warrant by the ICC having it, uh, been issued, um, and despite South Africa um, under the Rome Statute being under the obligation um, to then hand him over to, to um, the ICC. Uh, the chief prosecutor seems to recently expand the horizons of the ICC, suggesting she there's going to tackle more consistent way things like illegal exploitation, natural resources, arms trafficking, human trafficking, financial crime. Do you think this is part of an attempt to, to face some of these difficulties, to rebrand the ICC? Yes, I've, I, I argued this, this recently that the ICC is, of course, aware of its critics and, um, and, and change, of course, was announced shortly before the the actual withdrawals of um, the, the states. But before, even before that, of course, it was it was aware that there was a danger of African states withdrawing from its jurisdiction, um, and uh, there was a, a danger of South Africa as one of its key allies um, doing that. So I think it tried to um, uh, um, address some of the issues it has had with such politicised. Um, cases by then expanding its jurisdiction mm. and I think this is just um, very, very typical of how, how the ICC has operated because the, the ICC has not turned towards a more modest agenda but in a way has become uh, more ambitious because it's again expanding, yes. um, as you say, expanding its reach and um, within the notion of crimes against humanity, which can be interpreted in, in an incredibly broad <laughs> spectrum, is using that um, to, to then uh, broaden its scope. And I think this says something about the, the deeply rooted neoliberal nature of this institution, that it considers any kind of um, problems it faces to be addressed by um, uh, projects and of, of, of growth and of widening its, its remit. Um, so I think that's what um, uh, is is happening at the ICC. It's decided that it needs to address these issues, um, and then it's it's sort of exploring further areas in which it, um, it claims to have jurisdiction. And I'm afraid that will have to be our final point because we are out of time. I should like to thank all our guests. Fadi El Abdallah, Muthoni Wanyeki, and Dr. Christine Schwabel Patel. And I would like to thank our sponsors, John Hopkins University, the University of Kent, and Morgan Stanley. Thanks also to podcastthemes.com for our intro and outro music. I have been Rupert Sparling, and this has been Your Beacon, illuminating the world of the ICC. Thank you. Thank you.